0: A retreatant recently acknowledged to me that they wanted to live a life of awareness, but they didn't want to live a retreat lifestyle. And I think we all can agree with that. That we'd like the benefits of awareness in our life, but we don't really want to live in seclusion, in silence, and with a routine like we've been living here. So, we should look at how to make the transition from intensive retreat for the cultivation of very specific techniques and uh, habits of mind, and how to transition into our life and our lifestyle the momentum of which is so strong or the current of our lifestyle is so strong, it, it's hard to, to really know how to intervene in a way to really effect uh, a meaningful uh, change. The benefit of a retreat like this comes from the uniqueness of the format of the retreat, conducted in silence, with a routine, with very limited uh, activity, and a singularity of purpose. And it's a singularity of purpose just trying to be aware trying to be mindfully present with each moment's experience, whatever the activity. It's clear that over the course of even six days, we see an increase in awareness, we see a decrease in at least restlessness of mind, and we can, we can see that there's a transition in process here. And we could imagine that if we continued to live like this for a month or two or three or a year or two or three, there'd be some really significant and noticeable change in the quality of our awareness and the quality of our life as a result of quality of awareness. Even on a six-day retreat like this, we can get a glimpse of some of the depth of meaning and value of the Dharma for us. And often we come away with a renewed, fresh vision of our aspiration. And a kind of sobering understanding of what it might take to actually fulfill it. And even with all of the challenges that we meet on retreat, most of us find a benefit that affirms or confirms or augments our faith in the Dharma, our faith in the teachings of the Buddha. So the format and the conditions of the retreat are very supportive of heightening uh, dharma appreciation. And right now, your faith and energy and clarity of aspiration and self-confidence is at its peak. And when you leave here, you leave the silence, you leave the seclusion, you leave the singularity of purpose And this, maybe more than anything else, uh, obscures what we've glimpsed here. When our attention is called to the multiplicity of interests that we have outside of retreat, people and places and things and activities and content of all kinds, the mind gets dissipated, the mind gets fragmented, the mind gets compartmentalized, and we don't have the power of mind, the collectedness of mind, to see so clearly our own experience, our aspiration, our faith. And so when we leave a retreat like this, it's not really clear we can make the transition to living a Dharma lifestyle or living a lifestyle that is infused with Dharma appreciation, Dharma understanding. And questions such as do I need to take refuge or what does taking refuge in the Buddha Dharma and Sangha offer me? in my daily life. How can I practice Dharma at home with my domestic, civic, professional, social obligations? Is there really any benefit to the practice I do as a householder? Can I really make some progress in practicing as little as I seem to do at home. These are sincere questions and and they deserve some consideration because it's not immediately clear and we don't have such um, intensive training in how to practice Dharma at home or how to bring the Dharma into our life outside of retreat. When I gave the talk on the four noble truths I said you know the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha and that's pretty clear it is to be investigated so that the clearer we become the more we recognize the dukkha characteristic in our life the more we'll be motivated to to act the second noble truth is the fact that craving is the cause of the dukkha and I spoke about different kinds of craving. If craving is the cause of dukkha, then letting go has to be the antidote. The not craving of thoughts, opinions, things, people, events, prestige, recognition, it is the letting go of whatever the mind is holding on to that is the practice to the end of craving. Again Don Juan, that great Dharma teacher of Carlos, Carlos writes Don Juan assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable I had to work in a most intense fashion, and that it was absurd. I had now realized I could work just the same in making myself complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he said. We either make ourselves miserable, or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same." How can we realize the second noble truth? Craving is to be abandoned. When abandoned, the second noble truth is realized. We abandon craving by practicing renunciation. Renunciation is all about letting go. And we practice renunciation by developing what are called the paramis, and the paramis are those forces of purification. They're forces of purification because they are free of attachment, aversion, and delusion. The mind is pure, not defiled by attachment, aversion, delusion, when we're actively cultivating any of the paramis. And in this way we fulfill the Eightfold Path because all of the paramis are Eightfold Path factors. So what are the paramis? The paramis are those qualities of mind that the ascetic Sumedha that I talked about the other night, that he had to perfect had to develop to the default setting of his mind in order to become a Buddha. The paramis are those qualities which we must practice in order to also be free of attachment, aversion, and delusion. They are both the practices that support liberating insight and they are the result of liberating insight. You know, it's said that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And within every culture, there is culturally conditioned recognition of beauty. Beautiful people, beautiful buildings, beautiful gardens, if you will, and each culture has their own standards. Lately, though, I've seen the uh, composite face of the universal beautiful person. You know, if you take the 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 matrix of all the cultures preference for high cheekbones and this kind of eyes and I you know nose and uh, Etc. And they come up with a composite picture of you know, the hypothetical most beautiful person in the world Well Beauty's in the eye of the beholder (laughs) (laughs) Except there's another kind of beauty and it's the beauty within our hearts and the beauty within our hearts is truly a universally recognized standard the parames are the qualities of a beautiful person when you consider you know just reflect for a minute on someone in your life a personal friend or acquaintance or even someone in national or international life that you recognize or value and you consider think about what is it about them that makes you respect them or honor them or value them or recognize them as really a good human being. Whether they're very compassionate like Mother Teresa or very courageous like Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma or resolutely truthful and calling it like it is as Martin Luther King or the capacity to love like Jesus or maybe your partner and friend who is just really forbearing of your foolishness (laughs) and they're really patient I mean we don't we don't have to be and we recognize these are these are the these are the qualities that we universally appreciate in people if they're kind if they're generous if they're patient if they're understanding if they're uh, truthful if they live with integrity we recognize this and I haven't traveled to every culture, and I don't know every religion on the face of the Earth. But I think these qualities are pretty universally valued in every home, every community, every culture. What does it mean? What, what is this inner beauty that we recognize? I think there's, within it, there's recognition that this person is just really a good human being, maybe salt of the earth type, not too, you know, not too glamorous or not too exotic and not too exalted, but they're they're almost like ordinary to an extraordinary degree. with a certain humility, and in some ways, maybe mm, they're balanced, they're truthful, they live with integrity. And I think these are some of the highest human qualities that we, that we know of. What is it? You know, loyalty, truthfulness living with integrity, generosity, love. These are the paramis. These in some way are the most noble of human aspirations. But I think such a being also is very responsive. To the conditions in the world and in others around them and i think without a very responsive and even proactive compassion caring for others looking out for the underdog uh, moving to or acting to relieve the distress or the discomfort of others i'm not sure we could have that same opinion about them and so i think the nobility of real inner beauty also includes an element of uh, caring for others in a compassionate way a further element of such people is that they're active they're not uh, wallflowers they're not passive in the face of whatever they see but really they are creative in finding ways to address or maybe to express the qualities within them to address the suffering around them And I think it takes a pretty flexible, fluid, dynamic mind to be creative in responding to some of the apparently intractable conditions of suffering that we see in the world around us. It is just pervasive and it takes really a lot of creativity and uh, flexibility of mind to, to find a way to, um, if not optimistically, at least confidently, address, address the problems, address the issues. But, or I should say, and to do that without any self-interested investment, without expecting anything in return, without even an attachment to getting the result you want because that contaminates our service that contaminates our offer. we may with all good intention offer do respond proactively seek out a a, a a behavior and for whatever reasons and for the lack of supportive conditions it doesn't work the desired result doesn't happen when we can accept that with the same understanding and the same clarity as when our actions succeed then we're much more balanced we're much more we are we are of more value to others i think one other quality of The nobility of inner beauty is that it's humble while there may be a recognition of greatness there is a humility in uh, um, acting with that greatness within that greatness where there's really no um, seeking of self-recognition and without there being a sense of being better than those you're offering the service to so often we take pity or we have a a sense of i'm doing something for those who are less fortunate and somehow that you know uh, that makes me better than them in some way and i think that that's a condition that is felt by those that we serve and it's a it's not a pleasant feeling to be on that end of that kind of attitude and finally I think that this inner beauty recognizes that it's nothing personal it is due to conditions of birth and status and position and knowledge and opportunity it's just a conjunction of good conditions or good luck that allows someone to be in that position, to be in that role, and to uh, use their, or to to have gratitude for their assets, and to use them for the good of all. Without taking, as I mentioned, some prideful identification with being in that position so when we look at ourselves we see what is possible we see all of the nobility that we aspire to and we realize that this is not this is not particularly foreign to us it's not esoteric, it's not even spiritual, it's certainly not Buddhist, it's just development of ordinary human qualities to an extraordinary degree. And we all have, we all have them. We all have this capacity to be generous, to be kind, to be truthful, to, be, to live with integrity, to be balanced, to be understanding, to be loving. It's a potential within all of us, or they are potential within all of us, and it takes a personal decision to develop them. What is it? What is required to? See the potential within our own heart, and then to make the decision to aspire to fulfill that, fulfill the potential. What is required to do that? Thomas Berry a Catholic priest and eco-theologian says, the mythic vision is what evokes the energy needed to sustain the human effort involved. The mythic vision. Transforming effort from a laborious forced effort to a joyful attitude, a spontaneous urge. It is important for us to understand the Direction that our Dharma practice is taking us. To really understand what it means to be a Buddha, or what the qualities of a Buddha are, or what the qualities of an awakened mind are. To really understand that. Because in some ways it does seem kind of, well, mythological. <laughs> you know, the Buddha in our midst, would we recognize him? I don't know. Uh, if they were wearing uh, 21st century Western clothes, Uh, I don't know. And yet, so in in our heart, we need to understand uh, what the potential is. And then, even though it may be, we may consider it a mythical possibility, still, it's important to have that template in the mind as we do the very human work of bringing it about within ourselves. If we make that decision, to the extent that we make that decision and choose to act on it, we need to be prepared to confront our personal, our family, our community and our cultural conditioning because our conditioning may not support our efforts and I'll give you one example one of the qualities, one of the pyramids, is truthfulness living with integrity uh, and speaking the truth acting on the truth We live in a society that condones deception. It condones deception in the commercial field, in the military field, in the political field, in personal relationships. We, m- we pay lip service to honesty, truthfulness. We try to hold those in positions of authority accountable and it's no secret (laughs) that we fail miserably as a society and so while we could get away with it that won't meet or that won't fulfill our aspiration and we'll know that and so we need to be prepared to go against the grain of our society and, and maybe our personal friendships. I don't mean to be heroic, <laughs> or, or, uh, but just to understand that what we may be aspiring to the paramis are our practice of walking our talk. We value honesty. We value generosity. We value loving kindness. We value compassionate action. And the practicing the paramis is putting all of that into action, putting all of those into action. So we could say that the paramis are the practices that we as householders have the opportunity to practice every day as we move about in our domestic civic social and professional relationships as I asked this afternoon is there ever a day go by when you don't have the opportunity to practice patience if you thought of it as a spiritual practice Is there ever a day go by when you don't have either the opportunity to respond generously or to proactively seek an opportunity to be generous? You don't don't have to go to Burma to find people in need. If we take the opportunity, if we see that this is the work to be done, if we understand the place of developing the paramis in our heart, as cultivating the foundation for liberation. Liberation, remember, is freedom from attachment, aversion, and delusion. All of the paramis are practices of letting go, of attachment, aversion, and delusion. For example, generosity. generosity practicing generosity is practicing the Eightfold Noble Path factor of right action. And it is letting go of both our possessions, but maybe more importantly, it's letting go of attachment. The Buddha, when he taught the Dharma, always started with the practice of generosity because it's the first and maybe the easiest way to see how letting go of self-interested attachment for the benefit of others is beneficial to oneself. It is so easy to see, and yet it is the cultivation of non-attachment, which is the foundation for realizing the second noble truth, letting go, learning to let go. Morality or living according to the precepts of non-harming is practicing the eightfold path of right speech, right action, letting go of harming, letting go of carelessness, and letting go of acting out our obsessions. Renunciation itself, the practice of letting go, is the practice of the eightfold path factor of right thought. Letting go of things, uh, beliefs, and maybe most importantly, letting go of a sense of self. Not pushing it away, but loosening the grip on who we think we are, who we have to defend, who we want to become, because these are all limitations. Wisdom, of course, is the eightfold path factor of right view and right thought. Letting go of not knowing, letting go of knowing wrongly letting go of our naivete we know we know more than we admit to ourselves we know what's needed and yet we often pretend don't know haven't heard that can't do it being naive or pretending to be naive doesn't serve anyone living in denial is a bad habit it's pervasive but it's a bad habit the power of energy is the practice of the eightfold path factor of right effort letting go of of course laziness letting go of inertia letting go of procrastination letting go of procrastination ouch (laughs) that really strikes home why why do we procrastinate why do we put off till later anything I don't know about you but I have seen over and over and over again in my own life things on my to-do list that I keep transferring from one week week to the next week to the next week to the next week dreading Having to actually do it. And yet, when I finally get to it, either the deadline is upon me or I've, well, I've never finished everything else on the to do list, but (laughs) when I finally get to doing it, it is far less painful, burdensome, challenging, dreadful to do it than all of the fear and anticipation that I put up with. It would have been better if I just did it weeks ago and saved myself all of that, well, unwholesome states of mind. Patience. The power of me of patience is the practice of the rightfold path factor of right speech, right action. Of course, giving up, letting go of impatience, letting go of doing things my way, letting go of Expecting others to perform for you. (laughs) How often we have these expectations, sometimes not so subtle and sometimes we're pretty bold in putting them out there, of how we want people to behave or to uh, respond for us. Truthfulness, the, the, the parami of truthfulness is, of course the rightfold path, factor, practice of right speech. Letting go of deception, letting go of denial, letting go of insincer- insincerity. Letting go of deception is hard. Living in this culture, as I mentioned, where it is condoned. Letting go of the deception of actively misleading but also misleading by omission. You know, we all like to think that we're pretty honest, pretty truthful. But if I asked you, have you made a commitment to yourself to always speak the truth? Not easy to say yes. But if I offered you the alternative, are you a liar? (laughs) It's also not easy to say yes. So we all find our, most of us I should say, (coughs) find ourselves in the middle where eh, we're truthful when it's convenient. But just ask yourself, is that sufficient for realizing the truth? I mean, our path of practice is the path to realize the truth. The Dharma is the truth. If we don't have a commitment to speak the truth, are we going to find the truth? Mm. Resolve. Now, this is an interesting parami. Uh, not, um, Not a common quality. Are not a well-known quality that we speak about, but resolve is something like commitment, the resoluteness that we have, the commitment to do something. It is the right, it is the eightfold path factor of right speech, right action, right concentration. Resolve, steadfastness, is not rigidity of mind, but it's giving up, wavering giving up irresoluteness giving up passivity it's letting go of being dissipated why can't we get things done sometimes we're just too busy doing too many other things no commitment because our energy is dissipated to, to so many things that maybe none of them get done satisfactorily. So we need to look at this quality in ourselves. If resoluteness is one of the beautiful qualities of mind that is the foundation for liberation, hmm, what can we do to practice greater resolve in our life? Loving-kindness is obvious as is equanimity. Equanimity is, of course, practicing right view, right thought. Of course, practicing equanimity is giving up or letting go of reactivity. We know that. It's letting go of passivity. We understand that. Equanimity is also letting go of dramatizing ordinary events. (laughs) Think about it. So often, we dramatize ordinary human conditions, ordinary human experiences, in order to make something of ourselves, in order to appear to be in some dramatic situation. You know, pleasant, unpleasant, healthy, unhealthy, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's the dramatization, it's the amping, it's the overamping of ordinary phenomena. I, I think we know what it is. If it undermines our equanimity, if we don't recognize the value of equanimity, we may constantly be seeking for, you know, intense experience. Liberation may not come from intensity. What makes these qualities, these paramis, so? powerful in our life on the path of awakening is that we cultivate them out of a sense of compassion. Compassion to act and respond in the world in a way to relieve suffering, relieve our own suffering and the suffering of others. When the motivation is compassion and the paramis are the action, then we can say, One is practicing becoming, uh, developing their inner beauty. I mentioned that all of the Paramis are practices of letting go, practices of renunciation. Now, renunciation in our culture we don't really have many role models <laughs> of, you know, 21st century western renunciates. <laughs> right. Okay. Think about it. I mean, who who do we recognize nationally or internationally or even in your own life? As a good human being who's a renunciate. I looked for a long time to find a, a representative. And a couple of years ago, I thought Justice Souter from the Supreme Court. Someone who's achieved the peak, the you know, the top of the heap in the legal field, Supreme Court justice, living as simply as a hermit in the midst of the power dynamics of Washington, DC, voluntarily choosing to retire when he's still young by Supreme Court justice age standards, because he's not attached, He's he's not inflated, he's not attached to the prestige, the recognition, the position. Truly a humble, simple, but not simpleton, a human being, a real, a real renunciate. And if you read about his life, you'll see, he really is a very uh, simple. In some ways, renunciation has something to do with simplicity and being simple, not a simpleton, but being simple. The Buddha said, if by renouncing a lesser happiness, one attains to a happiness that is greater the wise pursue that happiness which is greater he's not saying give up something that's really unpleasant in order to get something but he's saying sure we have happiness in our life we have things that bring us happiness but if letting them go can bring us a greater happiness it is wisdom That chooses the greater happiness famous experiment years ago uh, some you know uh, psychologist had these young kids in a room gave them all a candy bar said (coughs) the candy bar is yours you can eat it anytime you like but i'm going to leave the room now and you can eat the candy bar but if you still have the candy bar when i come back I'll give you another one." Walked out, turned around, watched them through the two-way mirror, the one-way mirror, whatever it is. And some of the kids, they're decisive. Grab that candy bar, open it up, chomp it down, (coughs) gone. No problem. Others just sit there, put it aside, wait for them to come back because they want two. But the majority look at it, smell it, <laughs> maybe unwrap it. You know, mm, 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 uh, mm, you know, tortured <laughs> over whether to practice renunciation of a minor happiness in order to get a greater happiness. <laughs> we are faced with this option every day. Can we let go of a little happiness in order to attain or obtain a greater happiness? At our retreats on Maui, we have a lot of uh, retreat uh, equipment. You know, this life of renunciation requires a lot of stuff. (laughs) A lot of cushions, and benches, and chairs, and a lot of kitchen equipment, and just a ton of stuff. Bells, and whistles, and buddhas, and okay. So at the end of our retreats, we rent a truck. We ask the local <laughs> the local sangha to come help us. Just pack everything up, put it in the truck. We take it home, put it in storage until the next retreat. At the end of a recent retreat, a couple years ago, got the friends together. Packed everything up, brought it home, took a few hours, put everything in storage until the next retreat. I looked around to see that everything was put away, and I saw a box of kitchen supplies. So I went over to this box of kitchen supplies, and I rummaged around, and I held up a box, and I said to my friend, Duke, hey, Duke, how would you like a box of wheat-free, dairy-free, sugar-free, gluten-free, chipless, chocolate-chip cookies? <laughs> Uh, He said, there are some things in life I can do without. (laughs) So, (laughs) the question for us is, or the task, the challenge for us really, is to look through the attics of our life and see what we can do without. And what we can do quite well without. We all have habits. We all have behaviors. We all have beliefs. We all have obsessions, addictions, preferences that might have served us well at one time in our life. And we carry them along with us thinking oh maybe or maybe we just act them out habitually and yet they may no longer serve our highest aspiration do they serve our highest aspiration if they're a drag and a burden on us and they don't we need to recognize that to take a look and we can As you sit and watch your mind go by, you'll see what comes up for review, what you can let go of, and it's the practice of renunciation. Several years ago now, I've told you that I used to, well, be a deadhead and really enjoyed going to concerts a lot, and uh, would go whenever I had the opportunity, whenever they were nearby. And then I got involved in the Dharma, started practicing and um, had been practicing for a few years when I had this amazing conjunction of conditions. (laughs) I was doing a two week retreat, silent retreat, for two weeks, the last day of which the Grateful Dead were playing just an hour away. (laughs) So I said, all right, what could be better? go to retreat, (laughs) calm down, open up, get really sensitive, really, really, uh, just, mm, and then go to a show. (laughs) It was unbearable. (laughs) It was so loud and so overstimulated and so hot. It was just, I didn't realize that I had grown away from appreciating that and had grown to appreciate the quality of mind and the quality of being that I found on intensive retreat. But I didn't know that. I didn't look, I didn't see. And so, oftentimes, we outgrow. Things that we're attached to, and yet we don't know that. We haven't inventoried the attics of our life to see what is it that we can let go of. What is it that we can unburden ourselves with so that the energy of holding on to it is then available for fulfilling our spiritual aspiration. It takes energy to hold on to stuff, mental energy. And when you let it go, that energy is available to be used otherwise. So generosity, one of the, one of the pyramids. I spoke earlier this afternoon about the joy of engaging street people with uh, kind of a human to human contact and offering them something And the joy that is in my heart as a result. But that kind of generosity, while it's good, and the Buddha the Buddha said uh, of of generosity. Let's see, where's it here? (laughs) Somewhere, he said. If beings knew, as I know, the resultant benefit of sharing, they would not enjoy the use of gifts without sharing if there was anyone to receive it. If we knew the benefits of sharing, we wouldn't let an opportunity go by without sharing. When I reflect sometimes on what I'm giving and to whom I'm giving, I don't feel totally at ease. Because sometimes they're you know, drinking or they're using drugs or whatever and, and I may be actually supporting bad habits. And so there's a little, while there's a lot of happiness, there's a little reflection that undermines it a little bit. So in looking to perfect the practice of generosity, not to stop offering to homeless people, but in order to practice generosity of a, of a higher order, I guess I'd say. I mentioned also this afternoon that I and others are, are building schools in Burma. Now we go into a village and we offer to build a school. And of course, the immediate beneficiaries are the kids. Here kids that had no school or uh, had no opportunity to go to school. We also offer uniforms and books, school supplies, the whole thing, whatever it needs, whatever it takes to get the village kids to go to school. And so we offer the b- to pay the school teachers, everything. And of course the, whole, the kids benefit, but actually the whole village benefits because it's usually the biggest, most secure building in the village. You know, they're living in thatch, thatch roof, bamboo, things. And so it's really uh, a, a great uh, joy to be able to offer that, and, and it takes a tremendous amount of energy. It's like every day, every other day, or sometimes many times a day, I'm needing to correspond with others and contractors and people in Burma, too follow through on all these projects and so it takes a tremendous amount of energy another power me but it also takes a lot of equanimity because when we go to these villages the poverty is extraordinary and you want to do what you can for the people and one of the things that we also have to deal with is when we go to these villages of course The families are quite happy to send their boys to school but it's difficult for them to send their their daughters to school because well, they need the daughters to take care of the younger kids while the parents go work in the field or if the daughter is old enough she too works in the field. What happens in these villages is the boys get educated and they leave. The girls don't get educated and they stay. And so the village never improves and so when we go to these villages we insist on all the kids have to go to school all the girls have to go to school too and we try to encourage that and we also try to um, find out why girls aren't going to school it's probably no secret There's a tremendous amount of human trafficking in Thailand and Burma. And when girls who don't go to school reach age 13, 14, they are recruited. They're just, you know, they're offered a job in the city and that's, they're gone. It's heartbreaking. But, in order to practice the generosity, also have to deal with that. Also have to cultivate the equanimity that can see, this this is what's going on, and expand the generosity to meet the condition. When you practice one parami fully with a lot of awareness, you can't help but practice all of them. They'll all come into view because to practice any one of them skillfully, you have to have wisdom, you have to have energy, you have to have truthfulness, you have to act with integrity, you have to be resolved. It's a great path, it's a great path of practice to open yourself up to growing in this way. And it's not just in Burma, but wherever. I mentioned also this afternoon that we're supporting uh, nuns and nunneries in in Burma. Now it's a couple years ago. We were there in January. We met a nun who had a nunnery in Rangoon and another nunnery in the Delta, down below Rangoon. And in this uh, nunnery down in the Delta, she had built the shell of a building out of cement. But she didn't have any money to finish it. No money to put the doors, windows, the second floor on, stairs, things like that. And she also needed a kitchen and a bathing area. And the nuns were mostly orphans, so we offered her the money she needed—ten grand or fifteen grand or something—to to buy the lumber to put in the floor, electricity, build a kitchenette, a kitchen area, and um, a bathing area. So she took the money, bought some used lumber put in the second floor a couple months later cyclone Nargis came through the Delta with you know eight-foot tidal surge in the town where she was 500 people from the village went to the second floor and 500 people from the village stayed on the first floor where the water was chest deep and survived the cyclone so we said this woman it's got her act together. So she immediately came back after the after the cyclone, she came back to us and said, There's so many orphans I'm being overrun with kids whose parents didn't survive, or parents putting their kids in the nunnery who they can't feed because they had no no jobs. So she said, Can you help? Well, this is not just helping the village, it's helping because to educate nuns, to educate girls uh, and nuns, they all become teachers and if they don't stay nuns then they become housewives, but they're educated. And so it's like a whole region, not just the village, but a whole region benefits from the orphans being taken care of and the nuns being educated. So we bought her land, uh, adjacent land, built her school and built her another dormitory, and she just has a tremendous, she's, I I don't know how many nuns there are now, but she has a school there uh, in the the nunnery of a couple of hundred kids coming every day, which we're also providing uh, supplies and uniforms and things for. It's not easy seeing the tremendous need and not being able to meet all the need, but it is a practice, because to, to be overwhelmed if we get overwhelmed with the suffering in the world, we don't help anybody. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of understanding. It takes a lot of generosity. I want to speak one more about one more practice of generosity that um, has come to my attention. Hmm. We live on Maui. And where we live is on the southwest flank of a 10,000 foot volcano, which used to be covered with trees when it was covered with trees there was clouds formed every day over the mountain and it rained frequently and the cloud cover was so wide that it reached out over a nearby Hawaiian island Kaho'olawe which is not high enough to make its own clouds and so every day it would rain over on Kaho'olawe because of the trees that were planted that were growing on Maui. Then you know the ranchers came and they cut down all the trees because they wanted ranch land for the cows to graze. When they cut down all the trees of course the clouds didn't form, the rain didn't come, and the rain didn't reach or the clouds didn't reach over to Lave. So all the trees over there, all the plants over there died in places up to 15 feet of topsoil blew off that island. That's not coming back. But there's a a lot of interest and we too are planting trees on Maui. Both for the, you know, for the birds and for the ecosystem on Maui now, but also in anticipation of future generations needing trees, needing uh, an environment in which to live. This takes long-range vision. You know, some of the trees we're planting, like sandalwoods, take like four or five hundred years to reach maturity. But four or five hundred years isn't going to get ten feet of topsoil on that neighboring island. The Buddha said, or let me just say, the Buddha was born under a tree, He sat under a tree, He first attained jhana under a tree, and he realized full awakening under a tree, and he died under a tree. And he said, I resort to the remote forest, places in the forest. I found great solace dwelling in the forest. It is because I see two benefits that I still resort to remote forest places. I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and I have compassion for future generations." He also said, there are these trees and the roots of trees. Meditate. Do not be negligent, lest you regret it later. These paramis are the practice for we in our household life. It is the support for liberation. Whatever you do with any of these paramis is um, a direct support for future generations. So let's sit for a moment.